todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. Freddie Katz is a guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, to name just a few of the things he does in the world of music. He's been immersed primarily in the New York music scene his whole life, and he's seen it all from Max's Kansas City's heyday to working with new and emerging rock artists. We're going to talk about all that and more, plus play some of his music, so let's get started. Hi, Freddie. Welcome to the show. Hi. Nice to be here. Well, I'm really glad to have you on, um, having met you in New York recently and finding out more about your illustrious background. So I wanted to find out um, who are some of the bands or artists that inspired you to want to play guitar and be in the music business in the first place? Well, I think when I was a kid, I... Um... My dad loved classical music, believe it or not, and I I was very drawn to a lot of the prog rock bands in the early 70s, Pink Floyd and Yes and King Crimson and things like that. But once I got to high school, um, I went to Stuyvesant High School, which was in the Lower East Side in New York, and this was right around the time that the whole punk explosion was happening. And once I found out about that, I sort of put all the progressive rock aside for the most part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, I, I sort of became an inhabitant of Max's Kansas City and CBGB's. You know, the yeah. long hair came off and the hippie clothes <laughs> disappeared. And, um, you know, it was all dressing in black from that point on. And then it was... You know, um, Johnny Thunders was huge because he was from my neighborhood. So, of course, the New York Dolls, the Heartbreakers, um, the Dead Boys, the Tough Darts, um, 
the first time I went to CBGB's actually I was fortunate enough to see Nico with John Cale um, playing viola, viola with her and wow. that was kind of a life changing experience because it kind of I'd never seen anything like that before you know um, and it was quite mesmerizing she was uh nico was really really special as i'm sure you know so so those are some of the things at the beginning i mean warhol didn't delve into music all that much but mm -hmm. he did bring us the velvet underground the exploding plastic inevitable was a show that he created which combined the velvet underground with the light show it even actually preceded some of the light shows that were going on in San Francisco, although the Californians probably would never admit that. But but um, that was before that was before anything to do with punk. I mean, that was really the, the late 60s, 66, 67, 68. I was really just a little kid then, you know. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to Max's Kansas City and CBGB's, it was a little bit after the peak of the whole thing. I got there probably about 1978, 79. You know, when the Ramones were playing there at the beginning and television and Blondie, that was maybe 76, 77. And what were some of the best venues to see live music and what made them great? Well, Max's Kansas City was legendary. That was probably my favorite place to go. It had so much history. I mean, that was it was across the street from Warhol's factory. And, you know, it had the famous back room where Warhol and his superstars hung out. And upstairs was where the bands played. And the Velvet Underground did a residency there. Again, this was way before I got there. But the place kind of exuded that kind of vibe because of the history of it um actually max's is, is really featured a lot in um philippe marcade who was the lead singer of a band called the senders he wrote a book not too long ago called punk avenue mm-hmm um because max's kansas city was right across the street from union square where Andy Warhol's factory was, was actually on Park Avenue South, and they kind of renamed it Punk Avenue. <laughs> and, um, you know, CBGB's was down in the Lower East Side. Max's Kansas City was a little further uptown on Park Avenue South and 17th Street. And, you know, that was really the first place that any anything like that ever happened. So it kind of, you know, there was a vibe there that you could just feel it as soon as you walked in the door. Even CBGBs didn't quite have that. Hmm. Yeah, each place has its own kind of alchemic atmosphere, I guess. And then um, later, you know, later on when we got into the 80s, then we had Danceteria. Danceteria was a really, really amazing club. It was like a split-level club. There were three floors, and you kind of had, had the bands playing on the ground floor, and then you had this kind of cutting-age DJ situation happening on the second floor. 
And the third floor was more of a lounge. And that was kind of where this whole kind of punk gothy scene of people would kind of hang out and congregate. So that was a really, really interesting place to go. You know, the the early to mid-80s in New York City was very, very magical time, you know. Very much like the 40s was, very, very glamorous. There's nothing like it now. Well, I feel like you have done so many different things in the music business. Did you start off? as a musician in bands or how, what, what's your evolution from when you started to now? I guess I started playing guitar when I was a kid, when I was about nine. Oh, that's young. Um, yeah. I saw the Partridge family and I decided that David Cassidy was the person to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, before I found out about Johnny Thunders and Keith Richards and Lou Reed, there was, David Cassidy, you know, he, you know, he could wear cool clothes, he could grow his hair real long, and his mom was okay with that. And, you know, of course, you know, they had a band, mm -hmm. and the girls loved him. And so I think I think at some point, every kid wanted to be David, Ca every male kid anyway, wanted to be David Cassidy, maybe some females too. <laughs> maybe so yeah i could definitely um, see a, a little joan jet in there yeah so i started <laughs> yeah exactly so i started playing guitar when i was a kid and um by the time i was in high school i i had a band in high school that was called child labor actually <laughs> <laughs> that's great and we had we had a rehearsal room in the music building, which was, it's still there, actually, 584 8th Avenue, which is 8th Avenue and about 38th, 39th Street. Really a kind of decrepit, rundown part of 8th Avenue right across the street from the Port Authority. Now it's not quite as bad, but in the late 70s, it was pretty, it was a pretty dicey neighborhood. But the whole building was only rehearsal studios. That's the only thing that went on in there. And it was called the Music Building. And we shared a room with Madonna, actually. Oh, wow. um, Madonna was the lead singer, rhythm guitar player uh, of a band called Emmy. They used to play, you know, the local clubs, Max's, CBGB's, all of that. So, you know, I think a lot of people People think that Madonna, you know, th there's a lot of hate for Madonna. I think it's all sour grapes, really. You know, they think she's not a real musician. She's a flash in the pan, whatever. You know, she plays guitar. She writes music. Um, she was in that room all the time, practicing guitar day in and day out. Worked very, very, very hard, actually. Um, so we shared a space with her. You know, she had three days and we had three days and... I guess the seventh day was alternated. I'm not sure how exactly that worked, but but yeah, so that's how that's how it started, really. Well, now you're doing some producing albums. Um, now I know that you're currently working with Donna Destry, who's in the documentary Night Clubbing, which I still need to see. It's on my watch list. Um, yes, you should yeah, see it. Yeah, so tell me about that collaboration. Um, for those who don't know her, who is she? 
Well, Donna is the sister of Jimmy Jestry, who was the keyboard player in Blondie. And she she's had a solo career. She was in the in the 80s. She was actually managed by Main Man, which was Bowie's management. And um, so Bowie took an interest in her. Um, and she had a solo record. She had a minor hit with a, a cover of a Bowie song, Rebel Rebel, actually, which was a video that was on MTV. And um, for whatever reason, it didn't um, it didn't skyrocket. But since then, she's. You know, she's had different bands. She's written a lot of music. Um, she's sung background vocals on quite a few of the Blondie records. She was definitely a big part of the Maxis Kansas City scene. She played there a lot. Um, that's why, you know, she figures quite prominently in that documentary, um, Nightclub, and which is really the history of Max's Kansas City. That's what the movie is really all about. Um, so I met her through some mutual friends. Actually, we were both involved in a play. Um, we were both contributing music to this play that was called The Problem, which was this kind of punk rock musical uh -huh. that was in development. It was Angelica Page was starring in it. She's the daughter of Geraldine Page, and Rip Torn. Um, they're kind of local New York theater royalty. So through some mutual friends, I got pulled into that. And that's how I originally met Donna. And I played her some of the Patty Rothberg records that I produced. And she just loved what I did on them. So she asked me if I would work on some music with her. So that's how that all started. And do we have some music to play from that? We do. I can play you something called Fantasy for Anne. It's a song that she wrote dedicated to Anne Rice. Oh, I love Anne Rice. That sounds cool. All right, let's listen to it. Okay, here it comes. And then you're also working with um, the actor, Michael Imperioli, um, who has a band. So how did that come about? What kind of music is it? And how did you meet him? And what is the music like? Michael's really a lovely guy. And he's, um, you know, for people who know him, if, you, if you've ever met him, you can really appreciate how great an actor he is because he's so different than some of the characters that he's famous for, like in The Sopranos, he's mm -hmm. Christopher Maltesante, who of course is a 
you know, a murderous psychopath. <laughs> yes. Michael, no, we is, wanted that. Michael is really, he's really chill. He's actually, a, he's a practicing Buddhist. He's a vegetarian. He has a meditation series that he does online. It's like oh. a meditation podcast. He's a very interesting character. And um, he's a big punk rock freak. He's a huge Lou Reed fan. He actually wrote a novel called uh, "The Perfume Burns Her Eye." The perfume burned my eyes. That's what it's called. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. And it's yeah, and he's a wonderful writer. And the novel is actually a it's a fictitious account of him growing up in a building with Lou Reed as his neighbor. So he meets Lou Reed as a kid. And, you know, it's this experience of hanging out with Lou Reed as, 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 as experienced through the eyes of a 13-year-old, really. Um, so it's like a little fantasy novel. But, it's, um, but he loves Lou Reed, and he loved Johnny Thunders, and he loved all of that. And um, so he has a band called Zopa. They're really kind of a Velvet Underground punk rock-influenced band you know they're very authentic he's not like one of these i've seen you know actors like you know anthony rap for instance the guy from rent he you know he had a band he hires a bunch of slick sidemen mm -hmm. this is not that this is michael and two of his friends and they're like a little garage band really they're they're really authentic so I met him because he was actually rehearsing next door to Patty Rothberg when I was producing Patty Rothberg and playing guitar in her band and touring with her. We rehearsed at this big rehearsal studio in Manhattan called Montana Rehearsal Studios, mm -hmm. which sadly isn't there anymore. But Michael used to rehearse there. And one day, the owner of the studio came to me and said, he asked me if I knew who Michael Imperioli was, and I said no. And he said, well, have you heard of The Sopranos? Have you ever watched The Sopranos? And I said, well, I've heard of it. I see the posters for it on the subway, but I've never seen it. And he said, well, he's in The Sopranos, and he has a band, and he needs a sound person and a guitar tech. And if you want to make some money and hang out with this guy who's on TV, I'll introduce you. <laughs> <laughs> well how can you resist so that's really how it came about so i started guitar teching for him and his gigs and from there i started mixing his live sound from there he asked me to produce some recordings for the band and uh so that's how that came about i produced three tracks for them um which really were meant to be demos but i never record things to be demos because you never want to play something for someone and then sort of try to explain it well if it were really finished it would be blah blah right so everything that i do i just try to make it sound like a record and that's it so i did these three songs for him and one of them he used in a film that he directed and that was great but they never came out for real and then he put the band on hiatus for a long time because he moved to L.A. and then he was in um, Californication and he did some other shows. And then he, 
I think he had enough of L.A. after about 10 years. So when he came back to New York a couple of years ago, he started up the band again. And then he decided that he liked these songs that I did. So he decided to release them. So they were recorded in 2006, but they really just came out. Oh, okay. So how can they be heard? Does he have a album on iTunes or where? Um, yeah, it's on it's on all the platforms. Okay. It's on it's on iTunes and Pandora and I, I don't know wherever people listen to things. It's it's streamable. <laughs> okay. Nice. It's also available from the record company. You can there's a beautiful red vinyl edition of it that you can order if you're a vinyl junkie. Um, I think if you just Google Zopa slash Michael Imperioli, it'll come right up. What's that? Z-O-P-A? Z-O-P-A. So can we play something from that? Yeah, you know, my favorite track of the three is a track called 16 Nails, and I would love to play that for you. All right, let's listen to it. Uh-huh. That's right. Betcha. 16 hours, 16 nails. All I ever was and is and will be. A piece of silver and a paper bag. I'm a sucker. Well, that was uh, 16 Nails from Zopa. Very cool. I, I loved everything that you sent me, Freddie. You sent me a few of your songs, music to listen to, to prep for this interview. Um, one thing that I really liked um, was a collaboration that you did with Jonathan Spottiswood. Um, and it was very, it was like a what if scenario and i just can't resist that in any medium and i love right. it so can you talk about that jonathan's been a fixture in the new york scene for when did i meet him i met him in the early 2000s i guess so you know he's been around here for about 20 years or so I think if the music industry were such as it was in the 70s, somebody would have given him a huge record deal, you know, because he's just one of these genius songwriters. And back then, you know, people like Peter Hamill and John Prine and Loudon Wainwright and fill in whoever your favorite was, people like that actually used to get record deals. But the the industry's changed a lot and um you know, that's not really happening the way it was back then. It's too arty. It's too esoteric. But he had a band called Spottiswood and His Enemies. And I actually did wind up doing live sound for them a few times. And I met them all and I knew them all. And I always wanted to create something with him because I just think that he's he's a very interesting guy. He's kind of like the love child of Nick Cave and Kurt Vile or something, you know. <laughs> That's an interesting uh, combination. Not, and you not, yeah. not the current Kurt Vile. I mean the German cabaret Kurt Vile, you know. All right. Yeah. <laughs> he has some 
English descent. Uh, his father is English, his mother's American, but he inherited a property in London from the family. So he wound up moving to London. And one time when I was in London, I had my acoustic guitar with me and I rang him up and I said, listen, you know, we should really do something together. I've always wanted to. And I have a couple of song ideas. And why don't I come over and play them for you? And he was like, OK. So it, it, I actually, even though I knew him from New York for all, all these years, this actually kind of the germ of it started in London. Um, and he's very stream of consciousness. He kind of you have a conversation with him and all of a sudden, you know, he's written a bunch of lyrics that kind of are based on what you were just talking about. So it all happens very naturally and serendipitously. And I was sitting in his living room and I was picking through his albums and I saw this Chet Baker record and I kind of quipped Chet Baker he was the Johnny Thunders of jazz. Or, who knows, maybe Johnny Thunders was the Chet Baker of rock and roll. But for people who are familiar with both of these guys, I think they can probably put two and two together and know what I'm talking about. I mean, they both had some similar lifestyle choices, shall we say. <laughs> right. And, you know, the next thing you know, he's got his notebook out and he's written this whole thing about chet and johnny put a dollar in that box of wonder chet baker and johnny thunders you know put a dollar in the jukebox chet baker and johnny thunders and you know he wrote a whole song around that so um so we so we recorded the song and you know so i i did the johnny Th i emulated the johnny thunders guitar style for the lead guitar stuff on it and then we got the um his, his band the enemies had a trumpet player so we were able to get the trumpet player from his band to do the chet baker parts it's a really cool sort of fantasy scenario you know if chet baker and johnny thunders had actually played together it might have sounded something like this <laughs> i love it all right let's listen to it Dollar in that box of wonder 
I think it should be out probably early next year. That's what I'm guessing. Okay. So that song will be out in early 2024. Yeah. All right. Well, you heard it here first. Well, I, I know that you've been working with a lot of different artists. So um, who else have you been working with and what's coming up next for you? Um, I just started doing some glam rock with uh, Miss Guy, who was the lead singer of the Toilet Boys. And he's... He's just a wonderful New York character, um, very androgynous, very glam. Um, he's also Debbie Harry's best friend and confidant. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Apparently he goes on tour with her and does her hair and her makeup and all of that. But we're writing a bunch of songs together. Um, nothing's finished yet, but it should be interesting. It's very... It's like very 80s, campy, 
glam rock slash hair metal kind of thing, but it's all very tongue in cheek, you know. So that's one thing that I'm doing. And I'm also producing this woman called Marnie Kim, who is a lovely singer songwriter. And that's a completely different flavor. It's very alt pop, candy pop, new wave, 80s flavored. Mm-hmm. Um, and she did a song called Waves, which I wrote the music for. She wrote the lyrics. I pretty much played everything on it. And the drummer on it is Steve Holly, formerly of Paul McCartney and Wings and Ian Hunter, Mappa Hoople, etc. And that came out a few weeks ago and it's getting added to a lot of playlists. It's getting a lot of notice. So that's a cool thing. And we can listen to a piece of that if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, let's hear some of it. Well, um, you ha- have your own studio, Sierra Sound, um, and I noticed on your website that you have vintage equipment, which I thought was very cool. Is that pretty? Is that in demand a lot, or I mean, what are some of the services that you offer in addition to that? And what do most people, musicians, want out of a studio these days? Well, I can mix anything. If somebody has a track they want me to mix, I can mix it here. Um, it's what what's cool about this setup is that I have pro tools, I have digital everything, I have all the editing and all of the bells and whistles that come with digital recording, but I also have all of this vintage analog gear for people that are gearheads and want to do something that has a more vintage or retro or rock and roll kind of sound to it. So one of the things we do here is we kind of use Pro Tools as a tape recorder and we use all the analog gear for the front end. So in other words, you're running everything through this beautiful analog gear, but it winds up in Pro Tools instead of on tape. So you kind of get both. And um, where where is the studio? In Hell's Kitchen in Manhattan. And what is the website where... People can find you there. It's Sierra, Sierra Sound, NYC.com. Okay. And, and for yourself, Freddie, what's the best place for um, music fans to find and follow you online? Instagram is good. Facebook is even better. I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a Facebooker because you can actually write things on Facebook and you can provide links, which you can't really do on Instagram or it's harder to do. But I'm on Instagram too, because I know a lot of people like Instagram. So those those would be the two. 
And I'm Freddie Katz on Facebook and I'm Freddie Katz Guitar on Instagram. And that's Freddie with an IE. Freddie with an IE, exactly. Liza right. with a Z, Freddie with an IE. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your wisdom and your music with me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Well, thank and we'll you. see you in New York. We'll give oh, you a yeah. rock and roll tour. I know. I need to do that. I'll be back. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye. This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening. Wish bye.